0: Uh, The passage uh, from which the sermon comes this morning is the last paragraph of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, I'll read it starting in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, is a consuming fire." Thus far the reading of God's Word. I've got a, a good friend um, who is a great storyteller, and uh, one time we were on a drive from North Carolina up to Washington, D.C. Uh, we were attending the board meeting of a missions agency, and uh, there were four of us in the car, and one of the guys was a young fella uh, that uh, had not ever been on a trip like this before with us. And, and uh, as a part of the trip, I uh, asked my friend, I said, I don't think that this new guy has heard the story of the fish you caught on your honeymoon. And he said, oh, really, you haven't heard that story? He said, no, I haven't. He said, well, let me tell you the story. And he told the story, and it was a grand and glorious story. And uh, if you'll buy me lunch, I'll tell you the story. But uh, we went on and on, and, uh, and finally we pulled in for lunch Uh, at a McDonald's or something. And I I said to him, do you realize that you've been telling that story now for two hours? And he said, really? You know, I I was just thinking that I'd left out some of the good parts. (laughs) Uh, And he was a good enough storyteller that he could pull that off. But I had a sense last week uh, going home and musing over the sermon and praying for its effectiveness uh, that I'd left out some of the good parts. And I'm glad to be able to come back uh, to the passage in a sense uh, this morning because these two paragraphs uh, hold together. Uh, But last week we saw that Christianity is a religion of twin peaks. Uh, Can we call it that? Uh, The twin peaks are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And these symbolize the law and the gospel. And you could stretch that out to say they symbolize the holiness of God and His steadfast love. They symbolize the justice of God and His grace. And I I think maybe you could also say that they symbolize the obedience of His people and their faith, their resting on His promises. And I made the point last week that facing Sinai rather than Zion uh, could be problematic. Uh, The Hebrews were considering receding from Christ, and taking up their old way, the old way of the law with its ceremonies and regulations. And they imagined somehow that life would be better for them if they were to step away from Christ and somehow simply be non-Christian Jews again. And I mentioned last week that uh, St. Paul, in uh, his letter to the Galatians, confronted something similar. Uh, albeit of a different flavor. In Galatia, there were folks they called Judaizers, what we've come to call them, Uh, but they were, again, Jewish converts who wanted to improve upon faith with, again, a return to the law uh, with its ceremonies and regulations. So, you've got two instances of two different flavors of basically the same kind of thing. Now, I don't don't think that any of us are in danger… Of receding to Judaism. If you are, that's a different topic and we can talk about that. But all of us have a similar um, instinct in our lives. It, it, this, these movements correlate to the instinct of a fallen fleshly heart. And a fallen fleshly heart, which we all possess, is marked by its determination to autonomy. Uh, and to self-justification. There's a part in each one of us that resonates with the law and resists the grace of God, because deep down, and this is something that haunts us until the day we die, deep down we would prefer to justify ourselves. And so a lot of times the, the experience of a normal Christian is that you come to an end of yourself, you realize that you're a big sinner, Whoever was preaching the gospel to you got through to you. The Word of God penetrated your heart. You knew you were without hope, save in Christ. And so you gave yourself to Christ and said, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And you rose up justified. Uh, but then as you continued to struggle, you began to, you know, with the devil's help, imagine that God needed to be placated. Imagine that you needed to promise to do better. Keep forgiving me, please, Father. I promise I will do better. And on that basis, you can feel good about forgiving me. Well, the only way that that can flourish, that mentality, is if you do uh, two pretty grievous things in your heart. And yet it happens all the time. Uh, Number one, uh, you forget the way that the law is a hammer designed to crush the presumption of righteousness. The presumption of righteousness. You forget that. And you begin to imagine that the law is only there to be obeyed. And then secondly, and maybe even more grievously, you begin to inflate your own goodness in your mind. And you begin to think, "Yeah, I'm not so bad. So those of you who have done evangelism explosion or done any kind of contact evangelism like that, uh, you know the way that that works, and it's a it, it's a brilliant scheme. Uh, Kennedy put it together, Dr. James Kennedy, uh, but I think Kennedy would have admitted that he got it from Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, at least in substance, and Barnhouse probably would have said he got it from Luther, and Luther wouldn't have it either, uh, because it's woven into the fabric of Scripture. But the basic question is. If you stand before God and he's to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And, you know, and the instinct of every human flesh, this is the interesting thing. You find the worst kind of criminal. And the answer is, I'm a pretty good person. I'm I'm better than the other people I know. You can always point out a set of scoundrels whom you believe yourself to be better than, who are ostensibly worse than you are. And, uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is, I've, I've done this at times, oftentimes you will get folks who are members of local Protestant churches who will give you that answer. And that's, that's the tripping point. Uh, that's the hook. So, back to these Twin Peaks. Um, there is, in our mind, a tension between Sinai and Zion. Zion. And there is a tension in the Bible that is begging to be resolved, and I want you to appreciate that tension. And and I think that the tension is on display in in explicit terms when God reveals His name in Exodus 34. Do you remember that? Uh, The the Lord, uh, Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock and let all my goodness pass in front of you. And he recites his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate, the gracious, and he says two things back to back. Who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet does not let the guilty go unpunished. And if you're paying attention, if you're a sensitive reader, you scratch your head and say, how can that happen? How can you forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and also not let the guilty go unpunished? One of those has to give. So we sense that tension, and I really think that tension defines the Old Testament. Well, the same tension kind of exists when we consider Sinai and Zion. Now, the deeper theology, and this is deep enough that we're not even going to be able to get close to get into it, but the deeper theology, a robust, profound Christian theology, is that there is no tension whatsoever in God Himself. God is unified. He is singular. There is no tension in Him. There is not in God, and on the one hand this, and on the other hand that. That's not the case in God. He is unified. This is called theologically the simplicity of God. If you want to have a fun afternoon, Google the simplicity of God and see what you come up with. But there is no tension in God. It just looks that way to us. And it looks that way to us because there's a tension in us. But there's not a tension in God. Zion is still there. God hasn't changed. The law still thunders. And it's still a fearsome thing to stand in the presence of the living God. So the general rubric, one of the rubrics of, of Hebrews, has been that the old has passed away, the new is now in place. The old covenant was destroyed by the disobedience of the people of Israel. The new covenant is brought by Jesus as He absorbs the punishment due uh, that broken covenant, and He absorbs that punishment in His own body. Uh, That's why the writer of Hebrews can say, so you've not come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. But, and this is what I want to underscore, God is the same. He doesn't change. He cannot change if we understand that correctly. Sometimes we sing the song, and it's a good one to remember. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. There is no shadow of turning uh, with God. Sinai still stands. So law and gospel, grace and justice... Holiness and steadfast love join hands. And we deal with that every time we get together to worship, frankly, every time we open the Bible and every time we pray. So Hebrews has been moving back and forth from these strong assertions of what it is that God has done, and then these corresponding warnings that you not neglect that. This is what God has done in Christ, so be careful you don't miss it. This is who Jesus is, so make sure you don't take him lightly. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. And after this sevenfold assertion of the beauty of Mount Zion, uh, we have this last warning. Uh, This occurs in this rhythm of assertion and then warning. And we get to this passage, finally. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Uh, voices are an important part of this chapter. Uh, if you remember that uh, Mount Sinai was marked by the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, and then Mount Sinai, or Mount Zion, uh, is marked by the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So now, this voice is saying something else. See to it that you do not refuse uh, him who is speaking. And then you have this logical argument, they call it a fortiori, from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser was true, much more will the greater be true. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Again, he's referring to Sinai and Zion here. So, if if the the giving of the law was forceful and was demanding at Sinai, and if that voice was fearsome, how much forceful, how much more forceful uh, is the voice that speaks from Zion? It's very similar. It's even a repetition of chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He wrote there, uh, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's Sinai, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so that, this warning is seen in light of the promise that was made in Haggai chapter 2. Um, At that time his voice shook the earth, yet now he has promised. This is from Haggai. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Um, Not only the earth, but also the entire created universe. You know, one of the things that I can never keep track of uh, is the size of the universe. And I know it's pretty awesome. And I always try to remember, but numbers like 3 billion and 4 billion uh, kind of crop up in my brain. I start to confuse populations with stars. So I looked it up. Maybe I won't forget it. Although the entire created universe cannot be measured, the best guess is that it contains at least 100 billion galaxies, 100 billion galaxies. And each galaxy has, well, upwards of millions of stars. When you start to talk about the number of stars in the universe, you have to start using numbers that you remember from your high school math classes. 10 to the 22nd power. The entire universe is going to be shaken. When he comes, not only the things on earth, but the entire created universe will be shaken. Now, that's got application to you and me. Because the things that are shaken, one of the commentators says, the shakable things are everything that is stained by defilement and corruption." All of these sin patterns, all of these various things that we use to supplant simple faith and simple trust, all the various places you go to feel good about yourself, all the various goals you have and the demands you make in order to bolster your shaky sense of self. We've all got this going on, and we're bound by it, and we need to be set free from it. Your looks, your body shape, your humor, your wit. What is it that you rely on? What is the thing that if you lost it, you would consider it to be catastrophic in your life? Your job, your position. For those of you who are retired, your former position or job. Your office in the church, your skills and your talents. All of these things on which you pin your hopes all of these things from which you derive your life are shakeable. They are shakable and they will be shaken and they will be destroyed. And inasmuch as they supplant God's promises and provision for you, they're going to be destroyed. That's what the writer is saying. He says, our God is, not was, but is a consuming fire. And it needs to strike a reasonable sense of fear in our hearts. Of the God whose name we take on our lips pretty readily. We need to remember who he is. That Sinai is still in play. That that's who he is. I started rereading... Uh, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, been a long time, a lot of juicy stuff in there. Uh, but there's this place at the beginning of Paralandra where Lewis himself is walking uh, to meet Ransom, and he has this sense of something more powerful than he uh, being in the offing. Uh, and he says, as, and, and, and uh, he knows that what he's heading toward is good, but he can't help but dread it. And he describes the pickle that he's in. He says, as long as what you're afraid of is something evil, you may still hope that the good may come to your rescue. But suppose you struggle through to the good and find that it is also dreadful. How if food turns out to be the very thing you can't eat and home the very place you can't live and your very comforter, the person who makes you uncomfortable. We sang, Behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. Uh, You understand that when anyone ever saw God seated on his throne, they were undone. They were shattered. It's good for you and me to remember that, you know, that in fact, uh, that's the case. This is the God that we approach. So the upshot is very simple. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Two very simple things here. Uh, The first is gratitude. And I want to say that it is impossible to overestimate the value of gratitude. Uh, This hit me early on. uh, One of the first books I read as a Christian, I actually wish I'd read it earlier, uh, but Francis Schaefer in True Spirituality makes much of Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Let me read those to you. Uh, the apostle says to the Ephesians, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead… Let there be thanksgiving. And the way that Schaefer taught that and described it was, thanksgiving is the antidote to all that other stuff. That where thanksgiving exists, all of those other things are compromised. Gratitude supplants filthiness, foolish talk, covetousness, impurity, and sexual immorality. And and we could go a long way with this. I'd encourage you to think about it a little bit more later in the day and talk about it. Uh, but this is a, a, an, an easy correlation that gratitude is and I, I don't want to be simplistic about it but in the end the truth can be pretty simple. But gratitude is the way out of our cultural confusion. I, I was reading a An interesting philosophical piece yesterday on gratitude. And the author pointed out that the very foundation of transhumanism is ingratitude. The very foundation of all of our sexual confusion is a refusal to give thanks. We won't be thankful for what it is that God has given us. And we remain belligerent in our ingratitude and we start to imagine things that ought not be imagined. That philosopher, Matthew Crawford, if you're interested, uh, calls gratitude a faculty uh, in the literal sense. He says it's a faculty in that it is one of those endowments by which a person grasps his true situation. Gratitude enables you to see reality for what it is. In our case here, in this passage, it's just not generic gratitude. Gratitude for the mundane, for the everyday, which actually is pretty wonderful. It's wonderful to be grateful for the mundane, for the everyday. But this gratitude is built on uh, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. At the very foundation of one's life, again, this, this can't be overstated when he says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. My favorite commentator on the the book of Hebrews says, as ingratitude lies at the very root of all sin and rebellion against God, so gratitude is the pulsing heartbeat of every positive response to the gospel. Gratitude which spontaneously bursts forth in the apostles' exclamation at the end of 2 Corinthians 9. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God. So first he says, gratitude, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Um, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So two upshots. One is gratitude and the other is acceptable worship. Now, when I invite you to gratitude or when I take the place of the Lord and command you to gratitude, you know I'm pushing you toward that which is satisfying and enjoyable, right? And the same thing with acceptable worship. Isn't it amazing that the upshot, what flows out of all this stuff are these two things that are intrinsically pleasing to us, intrinsically satisfying to us. Adam instinctively, when he was opening up our worship, made the connection between this and Romans 12, and and so he should. Uh, where we're commanded there by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Now, we, we have the capacity, pity our poor state, to reduce the concept of acceptable worship to the structures of our service to reduce the concept of acceptable worship to what we do and what we don't do, what we permit and what we forbid in a worship service. This happens, regrettably, more with Presbyterians uh, than with others. Uh, But I want to suggest that this is a terribly truncated view of acceptable worship. And in fact, it can turn into a return to Sinai and violate the heart of the gospel. Acceptable worship is worship that is full of reverence and awe without regard for the structures. Acceptable worship is a worship that is marked by faith and not by self-esteem and self-righteousness. Self-esteem and self-righteousness are renounced. They're left at the door. They're left out in the hallway. For acceptable worship. Acceptable worship is marked by love of God and for each other, a genuine heartfelt affection for God, loving God with heart, soul, strength, and mind, literally with everything you've got, and the overflow of love for one another. So reconciliation is prescribed as a part of our worship, and it is assumed that we enter this room reconciled that we enter this room holding each other in high esteem. Peter says it, loving one another deeply from the heart. I love that translation. Uh, This is part of what it means to worship acceptably. Uh, Acceptable worship is marked by a focused attention, uh, not wandering affections. Acceptable worship is marked by a certain desperation. We've got to get there. We've got to worship the Lord. We've got to come into His presence. We've got to experience His grace. Experience it. Not just hear about it. But we have to feel it. There's a story of a rock musician. I won't name him, but he's pretty famous. And when he was discovered... Uh, on his own, a recording company, signed him and brought him to New York and said, we want to record an album with you, you know, go to work. And they sent all these studio musicians to him. And he kept sending them back and saying, this is, this is no good. And after a string of 20 or 30 musicians were sent and rejected, uh, the recording executives said, will you please just give us a hint of what you're looking for? Uh, and we'll try to find someone uh, who can meet that need. And he wrote back one word. He said, I'm looking for desperation. There's desperation in acceptable worship. Nothing else will do but to come into the presence of God and sing His praises. Acceptable worship is a worship marked by the hope and expectation of eternity. There is an eagerness to acceptable worship, it's not something to be set aside on a whim. It's not something to be in any way compromised. It's urgent. And I would say it's physical too. Excuse me for <laughs> pounding my own issue. Uh, if, it is al- if it is at all possible, watching it on TV won't do. With all due respect for those who must watch it on TV. Uh, if it is at all possible, acceptable worship is physical. It's here. It's with each other. Uh, lastly, I'll just say that, it, and you, we could kind of go on like this for a long time, couldn't we? But I'll just say, lastly, it is a worship that is, in fact, marked by the cross. It is a cross centric worship because at the cross. We define, we redefine our lives and our vocabulary. The biggest words, the biggest religious words, power, strength, glory, life and death, wisdom, righteousness, all of these things get inverted at the cross. And it turns out that they mean completely the opposite of what we used to think they meant. Now, after all of this, we do pay attention to the Word of God regarding our elements. I don't want to abandon that. But I do want to say that these are foundational. Acceptable worship is a worship of the heart. It's a worship of the whole being. It's a worship of the mind. It is the worship of sinners coming before a merciful, good, merciful Savior. So, With respect to the cross, here's what I want to say. If you're not a Christian, uh, we always, whoever's up here in this pulpit, invites you uh, to come to Christ, invites you to become a Christian. And I want to tell you what that means with reference to this cross-centered worship. Uh, What it means that you come to Christ is that you accept God's assessment of your condition as sinful, rebellious, and you understand that death is the proper sentence for that rebellion, for that sin, and you say, okay, I'm on board with that. Then you put your faith in Jesus. Now, this is very different from putting your faith in anything else in the world in any other way that you might use the language. You believe in Jesus, meaning that you attach yourself to him, you trust him, and his promise to save you completely. As you come to him, bending the knee, you trust him, and you stop trusting all of the other things that you thought We're going to save you or make you happy. And when that happens, by faith, your sin is put on Jesus. This is the transaction that takes place. Your sin is put on him and punished in him on the cross. It's paid for so that you are forgiven, really forgiven. And at the same time, his perfect righteousness, his perfect record, his perfect performance becomes yours and you were declared righteous. So believing in Jesus is not simply a matter of uh, grasping propositions. It's not a matter of joining a club. It's a matter of joining to Christ and explicitly joining to Christ on the cross. And then from that point, you are welcomed into the glad company of believers around the world and through the centuries. It's a glorious moment. If any of you are not Christians and you would like to learn more about that, I would love to talk to you, as would any of the other staff who have been up here or any of the elders. We would love to take the next step with you. Now, what if you're a Christian? And this is important. You've been declared righteous. You've been baptized. You've been set free from the condemnation of the law. But you still struggle. You might have imagined that you would have been better by now. You might even have started to try to justify yourself by the law. I picked up a book this weekend by Carl Truman on Martin Luther. You might be hearing more about this book in the next few weeks. Uh, But Truman says, as he's describing Luther, he says, that inner conflict of being justified yet seeking to justify yourself by the law is part of the very essence of what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world short of glory. It's part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. I think that's true. If you think otherwise, let me know. But you Christians are also invited to Christ to rest your weary soul on him, to learn from him, to delight in him, to worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing thing that the work of the cross, as we understand it, is completed. It is done. Uh, we have learned in Hebrews that the price has been paid, that the, co- the curtain has been torn, and that we are free uh, to have confidence to enter the most holy place. And yet, Father, you know that many of us still struggle. We have been set free from the penalty of our sin. Uh, we yearn to be set free from its power. Uh, So please, would you energize us, even as we sing this last hymn, uh, to uh, lay all of our hopes on you, uh, put all of our attention on you, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Amen.